so you want me to tell you the story of my life? Well, like I said, that's what I do. I, uh, I interview people. I'm a collector of lives. FM radio, KFRC. You'd have to have a lot of tape for my story. Oh, that's no problem. I got a bag full of tape right here. You followed me here, didn't you? Yeah, I suppose I did. You seem very interesting. This is where you live? No. Just a room. I want you to see we get started. So, what do you do? I'm a vampire. <laughs> That's something I haven't heard before. You, uh, you mean this literally, I take it? Absolutely. I was waiting for you in that alleyway. Watching you, watching me. And then you began to speak. What a lucky break for me. Perhaps lucky for both of us. You, uh, said you were waiting for me. What were you gonna do? Kill me, drink my blood, all that stuff? Yes. But you needn't be concerned with that now. You really believe this, don't you, that you're a vampire? We can't begin this way. Let me turn on the light. I thought vampires didn't like the light. We love it. I only wanted to prepare you. Don't be frightened. I want this opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am joined by my regular co-host, Ashley. Welcome back. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm pretty excited. We should tell the audience this is the first time we're ever recording at night. So welcome to the official first episode of Dana After Dark. There everybody. it is. There welcome. it is. <laughs> so, yeah, no, this is good. Well, I mean, the way I look at it, you know, we are in the middle of our evolution of the vampire series. We, we have to do this at night. It can't be done during the day. Are the children of the night. So it's, it's very appropriate. It's very appropriate. Absolutely. So for first time listeners of the show, what Ashley and I've been doing, we've sort of been charting the evolution of of the vampire film starting in the 1980s. Uh, I invite listeners to go back. If you haven't already, check out our episodes on Fright Night, The Lost Boys, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. I would like to point out that I did receive a little bit of feedback about my stake through the heart rating on, uh, on, on Bram Stoker's Dracula. I do plan on revisiting that film. I really do. In fact, after our discussion, I, had op- I would say I probably had a little more appreciation for the film after our, after our chat. Well, the Dark Lord always gets his homage paid, so I would suggest going back and rewatching it. And I appreciated the support for it. And and what was really cool about it was a lot of people. Their response to our episode was that they agreed, kind of like I did on the episode. We agreed that there's lots of problems with the film, but just to see the love that still exists, mostly for Gary Oldman's iteration of Dracula, I think was really cool at how kind of pervasive and long lasting that's been, and just speaks to the quality 
quality of performance that, you know, that he was able to put out that we talked about at length in the last episode. So that was neat. Absolutely. Now, much like I mentioned when we were recording the episode on on 92's Dracula, the movie that we're going to discuss today is a film that I have not seen since it was theatrically released in late 1994. So no surprise, listeners have seen the title of this episode. We're talking about 1994's Interview with the Vampire. And I watched the movie for the first time in 25 years this past weekend. And I'm going to save my thoughts for a little later on about how I feel about the movie. But I'm going to tell you this. I was 16 or 17 years old when I saw that movie. I think I was 16. I remembered nothing about the movie. Nothing at all. So watching it this past weekend was really like watching it for the first time. That's going to really play into how I feel about this film. But there is a ton to talk about if we're going to discuss Interview with the Vampire, because this is a movie that was based off a wildly successful series of books, which I know nothing about. So I am going to turn it over to Ashley to talk a little bit about sort of the history of how we even get to 1994's Interview with the Vampire. So Ashley, the floor is yours. So Interview with the Vampire is the very first text and what would become Anne Rice's basically life work, which is a series of books called The Complete Vampire Chronicles. The books all center around, in some way, this main character of Lestat de Lioncourt, who is a French nobleman that's turned into a vampire in the 18th century. And so each of the texts, in some way, deals with a portion of Lestat's story, of his life, and those that are in his life and that he touches. Currently, as of 2019, there are 13 books in the entire series, the first of which being Interview with the Vampire, which was published in 1976. And the most recent uh, is entitled Blood Communion, A Tale of Prince Lestat, which actually came out last year in 2018. Now, what's interesting about this, what you will find with people that are book readers, myself included, is that we believe that this series was closed many years ago. In 2003, Anne Rice declared that the Vampire Chronicles was done. And then all of a sudden, she came back back a couple of years later with these these new book series. And so what you're going to see amongst book readers is there's a lot of us that have read what we consider to be the original Chronicles and not have read the more recent text. I am in that camp, I will admit from the outset, I have not read the most recent three. Um, and then there's those people that have that have continued on. But the book series, like I said, began in 76 with Interview with the Vampire and created what has arguably become one of the most successful and seminal vampire lore, vampire worlds that that exist in pop culture and in literature. So Anne Rice, through this book series, created her own type of vampires that derive from the more traditional counterparts that we've talked about previously on our series. The vampires in her books can be burned by the sun, they can be burned by fire, but things like crucifixes, garlic, holy water, wooden stakes, none of that works on them. You can kill them by removing their heart, which actually continues to beat after they are turned and synchronizes with the one that turns them, which is a neat little thing in her series. So you can take their heart out and kill them, but staking them is not is not going to get them not going to get them gone. Mostly the vampires in Vampire Chronicles are famous for being overtly sexualized and incredibly beautiful. They are interested in the arts. They're all incredibly refined. Most of them related to either being of nobility or 
being turned by people from uh, noble backgrounds. The vampires are interested in the arts. They're art patrons going so far as Lestat in the series becoming a really famous musician and, and rock star throughout the series as it continues. Um, the vampires, their beauty is very specifically described. So their pupils reflect light in the dark. Their nails are like glass. They're smooth. They have white skin. And in fact, if that sounds like a statue, that's exactly what she intended them to be. They're intended to look like statues, very much literally frozen in time. And I mentioned the hypersexuality. So there's a lot of eroticism that is within the Vampire Chronicles that you're going to see picked up in pop culture with things like Charlene Harris's Vampire series. Well, I'm sorry, her Sookie Waterhouse series. That Sookie Waterhouse, her Sookie Stackhouse series, where True Blood, the, the series True Blood is based on, that erotic vampire is very much derivative of Anne Rice's vampires. And that sexual nature also applies to their feeding. Their feeding is a super sexualized process. And when, like I said, when the book series began, Rice started with Interview with the Vampire. And as we get into the story, we're going to talk a little bit about the characters. But just to kind of set the scene, Rice wrote this book after the death of her young daughter. So her young daughter died. And so that was the inspiration for the character of Claudia, played by Kristen, Kirsten Dunst in the, the movie that we're going to talk about. And Claudia, that whole character was this inspiration of trying to create a little girl that couldn't die. And so it's actually a really sad, a very sad start. And and as we explore this, the themology of the complete Vampire Chronicles, starting with Interview with a Vampire, it's all about loss, it's all about guilt, and it's all about these lost souls that are searching for meaning and for faith and for purpose. And that's what begins with Lestat and continues through over the course of the books that have been written. Um, and I know we're going to get into it a little bit more, Dana, um, to come. But I think that those themes that she addresses, they're very famous in New Orleans and very much like this Anne Rice lore that's surrounded the author herself. You know, I, as I've stated before, I'm from New Orleans and Anne Rice is a huge celebrity in New Orleans and has been since the 70s when this book became such a popular, such a popular novel. And I think we have to talk about her in addition to talking about the text. And so I'm curious, like, do you know much about who Anne Rice is or her story? I mean, honestly, not really. I just a couple things you touched on. I did know about sort of the inspiration for her to write the book with the the passing of her daughter. And I mean, besides that, I mean, just the, what research I've done on the film where, you know, and I'll get to that in just a moment where we sort you know, we're going to sort of talk about her, her omnipresence in the making of the film. But I'm just very curious to know, you know, what is what, you know, you're from New Orleans. What was Anne Rice or what is she like? I mean, what is her, what is, you know, the, the overall general consensus of her? Yeah. So I have met Anne Rice three times, twice at book signings that I have gone to in the city and once randomly at a bar and was a total fangirl and was like, hey, you know, totally embarrassing. <laughs> so, but she's a very strange woman. And she has always been notorious in the city because of this darkness, quote unquote, that follows her around because of this dark world that she created with the Vampire Chronicles. And so Anne Rice has a number of homes throughout the city. And when I was a teenager, it was a big thing to try to go and jump the fence and try to either get in or look into her homes or try to, you know, let someone let you into one of her homes because she collected all of these different 
different items from the occult. So she had satanic altars, she had original voodoo dolls that were supposedly, you know, active and live. And, and you have to remember New Orleans, I think a lot of people think that voodoo is part of the whole tourism of New Orleans. And sure, it, it's part of the, you know, the story of New Orleans. And there's, you know, voodoo shops, quote unquote, that tourists can go through on Bourbon Street. But voodoo is very much at the heart of what New Orleans is. And if you're not familiar with voodoo, and we certainly won't go into a big lesson, but voodoo is a really interesting combination of Catholicism and this practice that has become the voodoo religion. And New Orleans is an immensely Catholic city. Growing up, I was the only person in my friendship group that was not Catholic. Everybody I knew was Catholic. And so it's a deeply Catholic city. And voodoo is a religion that is deeply related to that Catholicism. And there are parts of New Orleans that you can go into that are very much like that movie, The Skeleton Key with Kate Hudson, where I would never ever go into those parts of town. You know, parts of my family still cover their mirrors when it rains because that's when spirits can come through. I mean, that's that's a huge part of the, the lore of the city. And Anne Rice became a big part of that and collected all of these artifacts. So she was, you know, known to be a proponent of all things occult, all things voodoo, all things strange and dark. And related to that was her own religious beliefs or, or more the lack of. She was a staunch, devout, if you can call it that, atheist for 38 years following, I believe, the death of her daughter. I believe that's what spurred it on. But she was a, you know, a staunch atheist and didn't espouse any beliefs, which is why she collected these things, because she genuinely believed them to be just trinkets and you know, artifacts of some kind. And so what happened was in 1998, she returned to Catholicism and had this huge religious rebirth and began to write these religious texts. She wrote these novels that were about Jesus and about religion. And it was such a strange time in New Orleans because it was like one of our, you know, our freaky daughters, because we love the weird in New Orleans. And one of, you know, the the people that kind of influence that weird all of a sudden became this devout Christian. And there's a lot of people, myself included, that have not enjoyed the later books in the Vampire, the Chronicles of, um, the Complete Vampire Chronicles, because of the fact that once she found her faith again, it very much influenced the way that she wrote the books. And there were lots of different articles where she renounced Lestat and renounced Louis and everything, you know, expressed so much regret for this satanic world, quote unquote, that she had written. So I think that Anne Rice is a really... She's a really interesting figure to think about as we look at this, and especially as we get into how difficult she was to take part in this movie process, because she was she was kind of a bug in their ear throughout the process and was not pleased with the way that the adaptation went. I think keeping in mind just her own lore and her own story, and, and supposedly she's still quite religious to this day. I just think she's a fascinating character and certainly has to be to write a book series that's as fascinating as this one. As far as you know, did she become... A pretty wealthy woman on the strength of these books. Oh, she, yeah, she's a multimillionaire. Okay. I mean, the homes she owns are are beautiful. And actually, I know I'm I'm not. I wouldn't say we're friends, but I am acquaintances with a doctor who purchased one of her homes after her um, religious rebirth. He purchased one of her homes, and it was cleaned out and everything like that. But you know, he said some freaky stuff happened in that home, which. I mean, New Orleans and Paris are the two, if you believe in hauntings, they're the two most haunted cities in the world. So I don't know if that's because of Anne Rice or just because it's New Orleans and it's old. But yeah, she's very, 
very, very wealthy. I'm working on the assumption that most people that are listening to this episode have have seen Interview the Vampire. And I know that you had mentioned that she really focuses on the the life of Lestat. But I was just curious because when when this movie was over, I, I desperately want to know what happened to Louis. Is he even referenced or mentioned in any of the follow-up books? So, I mean, all of the characters make appearances in, in some way. Um, you know, one thing that we can talk about, one of the biggest issues book readers, including myself, have with this movie is their portrayal of of Daniel, the reporter. He doesn't have a name originally, but but Daniel, the reporter's character, because the way that the, the movie ends is not quite what happens to him in the series. And he becomes a bigger character. Armand is a huge character that is not given his due. I was talking, I'll give a shout out to Carmelita Valdez McCoy because she and I were talking on Twitter about how one of my, and I'll speak for her since she said it publicly on Twitter, one of our biggest complaints is the short changing of Armand in this film because Armand is a huge character and he's such a great character. Um, so they, they all make appearances, but this is truly the story of Lestat and the world is created around and through his experience. So you know, you've got books because the, the next one that comes in the series after Interview with the Vampire is the Vampire Lestat, which actually tells his origin story. I believe it covers about 200 years of his of his life. And then you've got The Queen of the Damned, which was turned into a film. And that's really about the origin. So where did the vampires come from? Because like in Dracula, like in the other vampire films we've looked at, they, they're always kind of unsure of where they come from, like what made us. And Louis deals with that at length in the portrayal in the film. That's why he meets Armand and they go to Paris, right? And so like, Anne Rice addresses that by looking at Akasha and how, you know, the ancient Egyptians and how the vampires came and, you know, the 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 uh, tale of the bot thief. I mean, all of that tells these different episodes in, in Lestat's life. And, and Armand gets his own book in 1998, in 1998 with the vampire Armand. So, you know, it's all the same character again and again, but it is truly a series about Lestat. He's the main guy that connects. He's our eyes into the vampire experience and into the vampire world. Um, And that's one thing that I think a lot of people find surprising, at least that I have encountered that have not read the series, is because they assume the series is about Louis. Because in the movie, Brad Pitt is clearly the main character of the film. An interview with a vampire is about an interview with a vampire named Louis. I mean, that that is a true adaptation, but the series itself is not about Louis Point de Lac. It's about Lestat de Lioncourt. So given that, you know, it's one author throughout this entire series of books, how is the continuity between the books or do they really jump back and forth over a bunch of different time periods? No, I mean, I think I think it's it, when you put it all together, there's definitely a continuity there because it's all the same world. I mean, Anne Rice has a very she's very much like your classic series writers. Like, I mean, I would liken her to someone like Stephen King, even even though they write in very different worlds, somebody like J.K. Rowling, they, they create worlds that have distinct limits and distinct barriers and boundaries, and they do a fantastic job of sticking to them. And so when you pick up a Vampire Chronicles book, Anne Rice sounds like Anne Rice. Nobody she's 
she's a wonderful writer. Her prose is beautiful. And nobody writes like her. And nobody writes vampires like her. And nobody writes eroticism related to vampires like her. And so that continuity alone and style and in character archetype and true love for this world she created, you can feel how much and I mean, I don't know Anne Rice personally, but I've always had the impression when reading them and knowing about how she wrote them in the wake of her her daughter's untimely death, you can feel that this is a world she very much would be would be a part of, for better or for worse, for, because yeah. she does definitely explore the negatives. But you can feel her love for these characters and for their flaws and for the beauty the beauty that comes with such. Um, immortality. You mentioned that the book was published in 1976. Even before the novel was published, Paramount Pictures picked up the rights to the film. Now, this is interesting. It was interesting that they even decided to do this because remember, this is 1976. I mean, vampire lore was really, what What are we talking about? We're relegated to the, you know, the Hammer films and, the, you know, the, just the, you know, it wasn't a serious I didn't think I don't think it had serious potential, so I thought it was surprised that they picked it up. And what I found even more interesting is that they really moved forward on on pre-production quickly. They wanted to turn this into a film, and I think this was even before Salem's Lot had come out. So I mean, really, mainstream vampire lore was not a thing. But I thought what was really interesting is who they had attached to star in the movie was none other than great friend of the show, John Travolta. No, yeah. I did not know that. Absolutely, he was just you know because like like Jim Hempel and I talked about when we did our John Travolta. Travolta retrospective in 76, 77, right in that time, Travolta was one of the biggest stars. But, you know, what happens is they couldn't get the project off the ground. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that vampire lore really, I mean, it, it didn't become a thing until, you know, the Fright Night, the Lost Boys. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think John Travolta would have been terrible in it. So I'm really glad that didn't happen because I don't think he's, uh, he just doesn't look like these characters. And we can get into that. Ooh, I have a lot to say about that. Not John Travolta, but Tom Cruise. Um, Spoiler alert, don't (laughs) like him. Um, But you know that I think that's interesting. It makes sense to me why they picked it up because this was a book that was unlike any book that had come out in a very long time. It was, you know, I think there are these moments in literature, like there are in film, where something special comes along and so little is new anymore. Everything is so derivative of everything else. And I think that this was such a new take. It was a moment. And I understand wanting to to snatch that up. But I'm very pleased, though, that they waited until the 90s to do it for a couple of reasons. One, I think the casting. Two, I think special effects, you know, those coming along, because I think there's a lot of wonderful special effects and makeup in the film that wouldn't have happened earlier than that. And then also, I think the world wasn't ready for this kind of vampire story. And really, even the 90s, they weren't. They weren't ready, which is another complaint that I'll get into later about kind of the, the straight walk we'll call it, of the vampires that happens in the, you know, in the adaptation. So, so what eventually what happened was Paramount was not able to get this project off the ground for one reason or another. They just weren't able to get off the ground. And, and this is a classic case of a film that sat in development hell for years. And eventually Paramount would just completely sell the rights to a company called Lormare and then who they would eventually sell the rights to Warner Brothers. Now, Warner Brothers had in the 1980s, they had sort of a partnership or worked with David Geffen. 
It's the same David Geffen of Geffen Records, and he also had a production company called Geffen Pictures that produced a lot of notable films in the 1980s, including Risky Business, After Hours, and Beetlejuice. So when Geffen took a look at the project, he greenlit it with what was then an unheard of $70 million budget. And I say unheard of because look at the budgets for the last three movies we talked about. And I'm, I'm just, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the first two movies that were made for less than $10 million, talking about Fright Night and The Lost Boys. But the fact of the matter is that Geffen put up $70 million to produce this film. He also brought Anne Rice on to write the screenplay. And this was going to be her first foyer into actual screenwriting. And and we're going to talk about, I want to ask you a little bit about the script in a moment. But one of the things that uh, Geffen did was he brought on director Neil Jordan, who by that point was just coming off the su- surprise success of The Crying Game. And I'm always curious, you know, Ashley, I remember when The Crying Game came out. The Crying Game is very famous for a, a particular scene in the film. And I'm wondering, have you seen the movie? Oh, of course. Of course. Excellent. Okay. So pre-production for Interview the Vampire was moving very fast. And this is the part which I really want to hammer home. With a $70 million budget, Geffen was able to add some serious powerhouse casting. And everyone needs to keep this in mind. This was the early 90s. This is not 2018. This is not modern day cinema as we know it. You know, these days, most big budget productions, you know, like I've mentioned a hundred times before, sequels, prequels, remakes. So in a lot of cases, you can greenlight a big production without huge stars attached because it's such a familiar brand that people are just going to go see it. But back in the 80s and 90s, if you're going to make a $70 million production, and I just I want to emphasize that's like a $300 million movie these days, you had better attach some serious star power to the film, especially since the fact that unless you're big into the literary circles, Interview with the Vampire was not a huge name. It wasn't a common name. Well, that's exactly what David Geffen did when he cast arguably two of the biggest movie stars of the time, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. Now, on paper, this casting made perfect sense. But one person in particular, and we've already mentioned it, was outraged by the casting choice. And that was none other than Anne Rice herself. So, Ashley, I want to ask you just right off the bat, you know, and we'll talk a little bit more about the production, but the casting of Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, what do you think about that? What are your thoughts? And Going back and looking at that time period, I know this is kind of coming out of left field, but could you think of anyone else you would have rather seen in those roles? So Brad Pitt is absolutely beautiful in in this movie. And I mean, he's a beautiful man. He was at the height of that beauty. I mean, this was right around like the Legends of the Fall, Brad Pitt, where he had that beautiful long hair. I think he looks so perfect for how she describes these vampires. I mean, he is just, he looks like a painting. He, He was such a handsome, I mean, he's still a very handsome man, but before he, his face had any lines on it from age, I mean, he was just absolutely beautiful. And I've always thought that Brad Pitt looked exactly like what these vampires were supposed to to look like. Tom Cruise? I've always hated Tom Cruise in this movie. Now, I, I do have to say from the outset, I am not a fan of Tom Cruise. I'm not a fan of him of his acting or of him personally with his his craziness. Um, But I think that he is he's a fine action star. I think he does that well. But very similar to like Keanu Reeves when we talked about him in Dracula. Keanu Reeves is an actor that's meant to play certain roles. We talked about how great he was in The Matrix, how great he is in the John Wick films. Like that's Keanu Reeves. For me, Tom Cruise, you know, your Top Gun Tom Cruise, your 
you know, your Mission Impossible Tom Cruise, I'm fine with him occupying those spaces. But this, the true beauty and the grace that comes with what these vampires are supposed to embody and what they're supposed to look like, he just never made he never made sense for me. And, you know, Anne Rice, when she wrote the books in the 70s, she pictured uh, there was a French actor at the time. His name was Alan Delon. And he was a huge French sex symbol in the 1960s. And that's when she was writing who she pictured as Lestat. Well, by the time this movie was made, he was an old dude. So she had to find somebody else. So she wanted Julian Sands, who at the time was a young guy. And if you're not familiar, you know, he was in the killing fields, a room with a view, Warlock. I think, wasn't he also in Arachnophobia? Absolutely, yeah. He yeah, played the, he's an arachnoph- the professor or the scientist in Arachnophobia, yeah. Yeah, but Julian Sands was completely unknown in the sense of not having that star power, like what you're talking about. He didn't have the star power. And so then she came through and she suggested what I think would have been an even worse casting suggestion. She suggested John Malkovich, <laughs> which I think would have just been the strangest of films. Jeremy Irons, Peter Sellers, she suggested all of these men, but they said no, and they selected Tom Cruise. I don't think that he portrays Lestat well. I don't think he portrays a Frenchman well. It's never made sense to me why he's not French when he's French. That has always bothered me. Um, but you know, I, I don't think I don't think he's good. And to answer your second question, which is who would I have rather seen? I'll be very honest. Of that time period. I I don't know. I don't know who would have played him. I can tell you that today, if it were cast today, somebody like Douglas Booth, who plays Titus in Jupiter Ascending, that very much is what Lestat has always looked like. Or a younger, and I don't think he has the acting chops, but if we're just talking about physicality, a younger, you know, Ian Summerholder, somebody like that is who, I mean, somebody beautiful. Because when you look at Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt together, Brad Pitt is beautiful and Tom Cruise looks ridiculous in that blonde wig. And they're both supposed to be beautiful and it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. But do you understand why Geffen probably had to cast Tom Cruise? I think it makes sense that he had to cast somebody famous. Yes, I do. Um, And Cruise helped produce this, didn't he? Yeah, I believe he does have an executive producing credit on this film. And and we'll get back into a little bit more because I've got some things to say about Tom Cruise's performance in this film. I might be a little uh, less hard on Cruise overall. Because I, you know, he gets me with the, you know, with the, with the action films and, you know, he's, and you're right, he's great in those, but I've seen him do a couple really good things. Like, listen, make no mistake about it. I think he's terrific in Magnolia. And if people have not seen Magnolia, I strongly recommend you see it. And he, he was excellent. Magnolia, eyes wide shut. Both of those. But Magnolia, he plays, you know, this douchey guy that, you know, it just, it isn't, I don't know. He, yes, he's he's good in Magnolia. I, that's a phenomenal film. That's one of my favorite films. Sure. Everybody gets one, Dana. Everybody. <laughs> Everybody gets one right. Now, I want to I talk about Brad Pitt for a moment because one of the things I found really, really interesting is that this, this film, they were shooting this thing for six months. They shot on location in New Orleans and then they moved the production over to Pinewood Studios in England. And from what I read, I read an interview that Brad Pitt gave to Entertainment Weekly uh, back when he was promoting Inglorious Bastards about, you know, about 10 years ago. And he said that, well, he was in New Orleans. He loved it. 
He said he had a great time in New Orleans. He said he's met, he met some people that he's friends with to this day. And one of his favorite things to do was when they weren't shooting, he would just ride his bike at night through the, through the streets of New Orleans and had a great time. He could not say the same about when the production moved over to England because everything was shot inside Pinewood Studios. And from what he said, you know, the, the place hadn't been refurbished in 30 years. He said it was cold. It was dark. It was the middle of winter. And he was absolutely miserable. He said he hated he hated his hair. He hated the makeup. He hated the contact lenses that he always had to wear. And well, halfway through his time at Pinewood Studios, when producer David Geffen visited the set, Pitt pulled him aside and literally said, I cannot do this anymore. What is this going to cost me? to get out of this role. And Geffen reportedly in a very calm manner said, it will cost you $40 million if you want to exit this role. And at that point, Brad Pitt said, thank you very much. And he said, I'm just going to have to grin and bear it. And I'm going to have to just get through this. Now, what I think is really interesting about that is I did not realize that. And I did not read that until after I had rewatched the movie. So I'm wondering if my thoughts on his performance would have been a little bit different had I known just how miserable he was making this movie because you see that pain on screen and that pain is supposed to be, you know, the loss of his wife and the loss of everything that he's known and the regret. But there's a part of me that says, you know, he really pulls that off because of how fucking miserable he was making this film. What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and to Pitt's credit, one of the other things he hated about filming was he felt that the screenplay totally strips the most interesting parts of Louis's life that they, you know, completely sanitized his his story. And and a lot of that is what I was talking about earlier, where I, you know, said it was straight wash, you know, I mean, Anne Rice considered when writing the screenplay, making Louis female and Cher was actually considered for the role because she was very afraid about how the audience would accept the erotic relationship between Louis and Lestat. And they don't explore that at all. I mean, obviously, Louis was kept a a man and Brad Pitt played him, but they didn't explore that at all. They explore a little bit with Armand, a little bit with that, Um, but it's very subtle. And that is one of the more powerful pieces of this this world and the gender fluidity and the sexual fluidity amongst the vampires. And Brad Pitt, that was one of the things he disliked the most about doing it. Um, But yeah, I mean, you can tell he's miserable, but Louis is a miserable character. I mean, in the books, he is so unhappy. He is so upset about being immortal. He is destroyed by, in in the books, it's not his wife that has died. In the books, it's that his brother has, has died. And so he's distraught over that. He's distraught over what he has to do to be a vampire. And then he finds Claudia. He loves her. And then he loses her. And so he's distraught over that. So, I mean, he is, you know, an incredibly sad, tragic character. And I think Pitt did a great job, even though the script wasn't there to support who he really was, Pitt's performance still gets across who Louis Pondelac is. Now, Lestat, just to give you some context, Lestat is supposed to be turned at 25. He's So he's very young. He's supposed to look very young. He's supposed to have golden, beautiful blonde hair, which Tom Cruise has that wig, but you know he's supposed to have that beautiful golden hair. And he's supposed to be 6'1". He's supposed to be tall and statuesque and noble. And while Tom Cruise, I think, is an attractive man, I mean, obviously, he was a huge sex symbol, still is in some ways. He isn't 
noble looking. He isn't statuesque. He's more of like a hard look. And he's certainly not 6'1". And, you know, he had... He had trenches dug that Brad Pitt had to walk in as they <laughs> <know> filmed. That. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so as like a lot of the shooting that was done in New Orleans was done on the levees. There's this part of the levee system that's called the fly. And if you ever go to New Orleans, it's a great place. It's free. Go do a crawfish boil out there. But they filmed a lot there. And so because you can see the river. And so if you don't have any barges out in the river, it could be 2019, or it could be back in the 1800s, you know, you would never you would never know because New Orleans has that characteristic about it that it looks so old still. And so in that area on the fly, they dug these massive trenches. And so there's that scene where they are walking through New Orleans, and all the carriages are behind them. And the river is behind them. And my my friend, her name is Heidi, Saint Romain. She was an extra in this film. And you can see her. She she and I were like nine at the time. And you can see her getting in one of the carriages. And she came back and told us about these huge pits that were dug that Brad Pitt had to walk through so that Tom Cruise would be the same height as him when they were walking through the scene. And then in other scenes, he was on lifts, he was on boxes, you know, just so they could portray the, you know, the height for him. And I think that's ridiculous. I think that they could have found someone. I just, Brad Pitt, I think was big enough. Brad Pitt was such a huge star. He had such star power. He was such a sex symbol. People loved Brad Pitt in the 90s. And I just, I don't know. I just don't think Tom Cruise was necessary. And I don't think, I think in a lot of ways, a lot of ways he just, he does not portray Lestat, who Lestat is, what Lestat is, um, in the way that Pitt portrays who Louis is. And that's one of the things, and again, I, I have to plead ignorance for not having read the books, but that was one of the biggest things about his character in the film was I never understood his motivations. I never understood mm-hmm. much for for the fact that Lestat is supposed to be sort of the, the way you describe it, sort of the centerpiece of this entire Vampire Chronicles, I came out of the movie understanding more about Louis and his motivations than I did Lestat. In fact, he's out of this for a good swath of the movie. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, talking about Lestat, there's a whole, I mean, he's gone for the entire time that they go over to Paris. And I didn't find him particularly menacing. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, I thought Brad Pitt, I mean, he looked fantastic in the film, but there was a believability about the way that he looked like a vampire. He looked, everything was so perfect. His hair was perfect and everything was perfect about him. Whereas, and if I'm being honest, and it's hard for me to do this because I like Tom Cruise, he looked like a short man wearing a wig. Mm-hmm. And it did. Well, yeah, it, it did. I didn't buy it. I and that's and that's an interesting thing to say because I've got so much positive things to say about the rest of the movie. Well, it, I mean, just to, I mean, I know that you you said that you haven't seen. It. For those of you who have not read the the books, right? Just to give you an idea of who Lestat is, he's described as someone who has a mouth that is incredibly mean looking, but always sensual. That's how his mouth is described. He's supposed to be this scary yet like sexy guy. And his seniors refer to him throughout the series as the brat prince because he's incredibly vain. There are these moments in the book series where he will stop and describe for the reader what he's wearing. He's obsessed with fashion and he's obsessed with himself and he's obsessed with being the center 
of attention. I mean, he, he just is. And he's, you know, he's very, he's very much gender, gender fluid. He's very much, you know, uh, orientation fluid, you know, he's bisexual, he believe, you know, he loves creatures, (laughs) and he wants to consume them in every way. And that means literally, consuming their blood and also through sex he's this overtly sexual being and he's an anti-hero he's not a good guy but you root for him and you don't get any of that from tom cruise's performance and you're supposed to feel so sorry for him when claudia does what she does to him you're supposed to feel that betrayal because louis deals with immense amounts of guilt about what he allowed to in his mind allowed to happen to Lestat and you don't feel that you're glad to see him go exactly that's your I mean you nailed it that was the piece that I just couldn't put together as I felt no empathy for Lestat I felt you know he wasn't like a satisfying villain in the ways that you know there's like your Hannibal and he's not a villain exactly he's not he's I mean he's not supposed to be binary in that way he's such a complicated and that's why a 13 book series has been able to center around him that has sold countless millions of copies because of the fact that he is so charismatic and Tom Cruise, whether you like him, whether you don't like him as an actor, he's just not charismatic in the film. And I think a lot of it comes down to the writing, because I I think Anne Rice is partly to blame with the screenplay. And her hand was forced in a lot of ways, and I understand the mechanics of how Hollywood works, but the screenplay is partly to blame. It's a poor casting choice, which is partly to blame. And then finally, I think you're seeing the difference between an actor like Brad Pitt, who has some serious acting choices chops. He's not just a beautiful man. The man can fucking act. And so you're seeing that. And Kirsten Dunst can fucking act, even as a young little girl. And that's definitely where I want to go next. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you're seeing those two people up against, you know, up against a guy that just doesn't, even though he's great in Magnolia, even though he's great in Eyes Wide Shut, he perhaps just doesn't have the acting chops as well. And so I think you've got the trifecta of problems. And then add to that the wig, because that's also a problem. Absolutely. You mentioned Kirsten Dunst. And again, I want to just preface this by saying that when I watched this two days ago, I really felt like I was seeing it for the first time. I had tiny, tiny glimpses in my memory of, of things too, things that I kind of recalled. And, and But believe me, this was seeing the movie for the first time. And Kirsten Dunst in the role of Claudia, you can understand why she was nominated for a Golden Globe for her performance. She steals every scene that she is in. Now, maybe looking back on it now, it's because Tom Cruise kind of takes, sucks the wind out of a lot of scenes he's in, but I was so enamored with the character of Claudia and we're going to get into some spoilers here. So if you haven't seen the movie, please stop because I'm going to talk about a very crucial, pivotal spoiler moment from the film. Her death got me so much that I even started to tear up a little bit. And it's interesting because she is still an anti-hero. She is, she kills people left and right in this movie. She kills people that look at her the wrong way. Yet I was so intrigued and the relationship that her and Louis had, it felt so real And the pain that he felt when she died, I felt it too. Like, I was outraged. And I'm just kind of curious. I want to ask you about her performance in the film. I want to ask you about how, you know, her death in the film impacts you. And then I want to know how is that handled in the book? So, I mean, her portrayal is actually pretty, it's actually pretty accurate. Um, It's, I mean, obviously there's always 
changes. You know, there's always differences. But Kirsten Dunst does a wonderful job of creating and bringing to life the character of of Claudia. Um, One of the biggest changes and I just I I think book readers would you know bring their torches out for me if I didn't mention this one of the biggest like you know changes with the book to the film is the whole way that like Lestat becomes weakened by quote-unquote drinking the dead blood huge eye roll there you know Anne Rice was famously interviewed about that because that was not her um, device that she put in and she was so furious about that when she saw the film because she said they're dead why would dead blood hurt them you know, it's so ridiculous um, so that was a big difference but as far as Claudia and her motivations and how nefarious of a character she is because she is a you know, we've in the other the other series we've looked at. You know, Dracula was a bad vampire in the sense that he killed people, but he was such a tortured soul, and he kind of kept to himself in his castle in Transylvania. You know, until he came to London, he wasn't much of a problem for the human race. He wasn't going around and turning vampires everywhere. These vampires, though, are the first vampires, in my opinion, that are really frightening vampires because they're truly predators like Brad Pitt. And I'm paraphrasing like his monologue says everything about them is meant to attract their prey, which is us. They're beautiful. They're erotic. They're we're attracted to them sexually. We want them to have us. We give ourselves over to them the way they smell, the way they look. And she is such an, an interesting take on that because she is the test of our greatest weakness, which is our mercy for for kids. And so she's this demonic little girl that isn't a little girl. She's very much a grown woman. And that's one of my favorite things that Anne Rice does in these series is what an interesting idea and a take for vampires that if you're turned as a child and you age over all of these hundreds of years or however long you're alive in this you know state of immortality, then what becomes of you? How complicated that must be. And that scene where she cuts her hair and it grows back or when she kills the beautiful woman that's you know fully developed and keeps her in her bed and the psychology of that. I mean, I think all of that is so fascinating. And as far as her death, the scene where Louis finds Claudia is such a movie. And then when she turns to the dust and I mean, you support exactly what he does with that, you know, with, you know, the the gasoline and slaughtering all of them. You get it, you understand it, and it's incredibly moving. And the fact that she made us love a character that was that evil, um, I think shows that even at that young age, she was just a, she was a force to be reckoned with. I've never really talked about Antonio Banderas because honestly, he's an actor that, you know, honestly, if I'm being honest, you know, I can take or leave. You know, I think he's interesting in a few movies. And I, I do like the uh, Robert Rodriguez films that he's done. And, and you know, he's always been, he's always been a good actor. You know, he's always been somebody that, yeah, but he's not somebody I would jump out. Oh, I got to go see the new Antonio Banderas movie. Uh, like that being said, this is the best I've ever seen him in any movie period. And I wanted to see more. I was so enthralled by his character. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about his performance. And you said that they really expand upon him in the series. And he was, I mean, again, hats off to Antonio Banderas. He was fantastic in this movie. So I'm I'm really biased, and I'll admit that from the outset, because Armand is my favorite character in the Vampire Chronicles. I love Armand. And I think Antonio Banderas is 
perfect. I think that he portrays him perfectly. I think he looks perfect. His accent is perfect. I think everything about him, that 1994 Antonio Banderas, that moment in time is just a beautiful iteration of who Armand is. And he and Brad, see those scenes, he and Brad Pitt together, they look like what this world is supposed to look like. And that's that's why I think the second half of the film in Paris makes so much more of an impact than the first half does, because he and Tom Cruise just don't look right together. He and Antonio Banderas do, though. And Armand is a fascinating character. He is a very, I mean, like all the vampires in her series, he's a complicated guy. The Vampire Armand that was released in 1998 is a great book. It tells a lot about him. You know, he has this whole extended uh, relationship with Daniel the reporter, Christian Slater's character. So in the book series, um, Daniel is not kidnapped by Lestat. Uh, Daniel goes out and seeks out Lestat. And so in another book that comes, he's trying to find him in order to get Lestat to turn him. He wants Lestat to make him into a vampire and he never finds him. But what he does find is Armand. And Armand and he enter into a relationship for years. And they he begs Armand again and again to turn him, to turn him, to turn him, and Armand won't. He he wants to keep him human. And eventually, Daniel becomes very, very ill. Uh, it's, it's insinuated that it's due to his alcoholism. And I believe he's 37. Correct me on that, book readers. But at the age of 37, finally, Armand turns him, um, finally. And so they have this whole extended relationship, and Armand and Louis have this deep sexual connection. And I mean, Armand's just a fascinating character. And I think the I mean, he's in such little scenes. But I, I think the scariest parts of this film are in Paris, the the shows that they do. And when that young girl is is killed, and the way that Armand approaches her and tells her it's fine, and convinces her to stop fighting, and then they kill her. That moment is exactly who Armand is in the books. He's that scary. <laughs> you know, he's that dark. He's that dangerous. And Antonio Banderas did something with five minutes of screen time that Tom Cruise couldn't do with the first like 47 minutes that he had. Uh, let's talk about Christian Slater just for a moment because he was a last minute replacement because the late River Phoenix had been cast in the role of the interviewer, uh, the reporter, Daniel, and uh, passed away re- literally just days before principal photography for this film was supposed to start. So I wonder, here's the question I have, and this is pure uh, speculation and just a pure hypothesis, but do you feel like if River Phoenix had been in the role, we would have seen more of him on screen? Do you feel like his character would have had a bigger role or is the character of the reporter, the interviewer, is that kind of in relation to the, the, the amount that he's in the movie? Is that sort of in relation to the amount that he's in the book? Yeah, I mean, I, as far as I remember, um, I, I don't he, I don't even I think we I just they all run together for me. So I apologize. But I don't believe we even find out his name until later. Like, I think he's just referred to as the reporter. So I, I think we wouldn't have gotten more. And I'll be very honest, I thought Christian Slater was fine yeah, in well, the yeah, role. Yeah. I, I thought he I, I, I love Christian Slater. I've always he's one of my favorite 90s actors. I, I, I've always adored Christian Slater. River Phoenix, I think was a beautiful actor. And I'm so sorry, we didn't get to see what else he had to offer. Because I think he had, I mean, my own private Idaho. I mean, we talked about Keanu Reeves. That's one of my favorite Keanu Reeves performances and River Phoenix is just incredible in that film. But and so I think River Phoenix would have been amazing. But I think Christian Slater did a a great job. Now, I do think if they had done more 
of the series and we had seen who Daniel became, River Phoenix would have been a better choice for that. I think as an actor and the type of actor as he that he was than Christian Slater was because Christian Slater very much plays the the funny well like he Christian Slater has such great comedic timing yeah. River Phoenix was more of your dramatic actor and I think River Phoenix would have been better over an extended series which we didn't get but um, Christian Slater I thought was great there's a couple things I want to do a couple things I want to ask you here just but a can I just yes. can I just add something please, really quickly please I think that I would be remiss not to mention my my favorite performance in this film, which is Stephen Rhea. Stephen Rhea, I think, deserved every award that was possible, which I know he didn't get any because he had such a tiny, tiny role in this. But he is so damn frightening in this film. And I just don't think the second half of this film would have worked without him. He is such an amazing character actor. And I just think he deserves a little bit of a shout out from us because that scene where he runs up at the end and gets cut in half or the scene where he greets him on the street and walks up upside down and the archway he's so damn creepy he's so good and i just wanted to give a little shout out to one of my favorite character actors because he chews up every scene he's in in this movie absolutely so interview with the vampire was released on november 11th 1994 now this is a this is a year of movies we're talking about. This is the same. This is shortly after Pulp Fiction came out. So, I mean, this was the same year that Forrest Gump came out. I mean, there was there were some big movies. Shawshank Redemption. This was this was a, a, a year for movies. Having said that, the movie opened up to mixed to positive reviews. It would become one of the more successful films of 1994, taking in a little over $224 million. As I mentioned, Kirsten Dunst it was nominated for Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. The film received a couple of Academy Award nominations. Anne Rice would go on record as saying that she was she had made a mistake when it came to her disdain for the casting choice. And after seeing the movie, she said, you know, in, uh, in interviews that, oh, no, that, that it was absolutely perfect. Was that her just playing ball? Was that her just, you know, trying to stay in the good graces of the studio? And then the follow up question to that is, this was a successful movie. Why didn't we get the sequels? What are your what's your speculation on that? I- I mean, I, I wonder how much they paid her to say that, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I just can't imagine the amount of blood and sweat and tears she put into that series. I just can't imagine her being satisfied with the portrayal. No, is it a bad movie? No, I, I, I enjoy this film. This is not a film that I'm going to, you know, shit all over because I very much enjoy this film. And I will say that from the time that Lestat, his, you know, his throat is cut to the end, I love that movie. That is like one of my favorite vampire flicks, that half. The first half I have issues with, but you know, I can't imagine her being thrilled with it. You know, you talked about the success so randomly, and it's only because it was filmed in New Orleans. Randomly, my high school English teacher, Tom Duggar, I know that you're listening. Hello. Uh, Tom Duggar, my English teacher, is an actor, and he actually was in this film. So there's the scene where Brad Pitt, where um, Tom Cruise forces him to feed on the barmaid. Yeah. And there's the acting troupe in the background and they're wearing those old masks. So Tom Duggar, my English teacher, is one of those actors. And what's interesting about it is the director called them and had them prep like a 20 minute 
scene. They wrote an entire play. They created an entire storyline for who these actors were. They filmed for multiple nights. There was the, and there was a huge part that was supposed to involve the play. Now, obviously, it's cut down tremendously for the film, but because of the fact that he was in it and he was unionized, he received residual checks for this film and to this day still receives money in the mail from Interview with the Vampire. And so this was 94. So I actually had Mr. Duggar in high school in, you know, the the late 90s, early 2000s. And by then he was still getting like 800, 850 bucks a month no for kidding. the film. No kidding. And today I believe, so I haven't talked to him about it since January and I meant to call him before we recorded and the day got away with me. But in January, he told me his last check was for $8 and like 61 cents. <laughs> but he still gets that every single month. But I mean, even, you know, t- less than 10 years later, he was I mean, as little of a part he had, he was still making that much money. So that shows you how successful over time, yeah. you know, this film was. And, you know, and, and this was the movie that Tom Cruise, you know, made the famous choice to get paid through residuals because yep. that wasn't, you know, a big thing then. And he made that choice. So I can't even imagine how much Tom Cruise's checks residuals were because Tom Duggar was getting 800 bucks, what Tom Cruise got, right? But I think that you saw this, I don't want to call it a cult following because it isn't an underground film, but you saw this following that occurred after the film came out. And I think a lot of it had to do with how popular Brad Pitt continued to get. Um, I really do. As far as the sequels, all I will say to that is I think what you saw with Interview with a Vampire is how difficult a thoroughly detailed book is to bring to screen in an appropriate way and an effective way. And the only thing I can relate that to is I've, I've been reading um, a series of books by Deborah Harkness called the All Souls Trilogy. And the first book is called The Discovery of Witches. And there's a show on Sundance called A Discovery of Witches. And it's a multi-part series about the first book. And it's, you know, 10 hours long. And it's still difficult to bring that tale of vampires and witches to screen effectively. There's still issues. They had two and a half hours to bring an entire text and create an entire world. And I just don't think it's possible to pay homage to that quality of book, to that in-depth book. And then finally, again, I think the world was just not ready for the type of vampires that they were. We needed True Blood to come along and everybody be okay with some beautiful men being with one another. And then it was okay. You know, Eric and Bill are, it's all right if they, you know, get busy with one another because it was 20, whatever it was when True Blood came out. I don't think the world was ready for that eroticism that existed in in Rice's world. And so in a way, I'm kind of glad that it petered out after this one off. Before we wrap this up, I have to ask about Queen of the Damned, uh, the movie. I have not seen it. Is this something I should even seek out? It is a fucking dumpster fire. I mean, now, if you want, you know, to get yourself a little, you know, a, a little liquored up and go watch it and have a good time, I, I mean, sure. I think Aaliyah is beautiful and I'm so sorry she's dead. I loved her, but it is a fucking dumpster fire. And what is his name? Stuart? Townsend? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll run He's with that. Fuck. We'll go with that. <laughs> fucking dumpster fire. There is a reason why the most famous thing that he is famous for is having sex with Charlize Theron because he is terrible. He's a much worse Lestat than Tom Cruise was. And okay. it's just a bad, it's just a bad movie. Gotcha. Okay. You know what? 
I would rather watch Fright Night 2. Oh. 30 times in a row than watch That's the Queen of the Damned. So. What we'd like to do at the end of each one of these episodes, we like to assign a rating. And in this case, we're going to use how many stakes through the heart would you give this movie with one being the worst, 10 being the best. So, Ashley, with Interview with the Vampire, how many stakes through the heart? I've been very conflicted about this, Dana, because I take this very seriously. <laughs> and so, you know, you got you got trolled for your Dracula rating. Yes, yes I did. Rightfully so. Rightfully um, so. <laughs> I mean, you know, I... I guess I'll, I'll give my explanation first. I, I want to pay homage to how important of a film this is and how beautiful of a vampire world Anne Rice created that we see in Interview with the Vampire. Um, and if I were doing just the second half of the film, it would be a nine. But because of the first half of the film, I'm going to have this give this one a, a resounding seven and a half stakes through the heart. Okay, so... I went into this movie, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I went into this movie much like I did with Bram Stoker's Dracula. I hadn't seen it since it came out, and we all know my feelings on Bram Stoker's Dracula. It wasn't it wasn't what I was expecting. This movie exceeded my expectations. I thought this was a beautifully shot film. I thought, I agree with everything you said about the second half of this movie. It's damn near perfect. I'm not as hard on Tom Cruise in this film as you are, but I also recognize that, especially after this conversation, how fatally flawed he was in the casting of him. I mean, how, how, how flawed he was even being cast in this film. But that being said, Kirsten Dunst as Claudia Antonio Banderas as Armand, the beautiful set designs, everything about this film, I'm giving it an eight stakes out of 10. I text you as soon as I finished the movie and said, this movie was wonderful. This movie was beautiful. Well, and I have to tell you, it makes me very happy that in 2019 that people can still enjoy what she created and what the filmmakers created with this movie, especially, I know he hated it, but Brad Pitt and Kirsten Dunst and what they were able to do to to pay homage to that because we owe her and Rice meeting her there. We owe her so much for the way that vampires have progressed since she created who her vampires were. Um, I've mentioned True Blood already. You know, I, I can't let this go without making an Ethan Hawke reference. Um, and, you know, Ethan Hawke, very famously, his performance in Daybreakers, he based his performance on Louie and Brad Pitt's performance and interview with the vampire. I mean, it is in it, it is seminal. It is it is as seminal in modern day vampire conversations as Dracula is. Absolutely. I mean, it just it just is. And and so it makes me very pleased that in 2019 you can still enjoy it that much. And and I do enjoy the film. I just I enjoy the second half tremendously more than I enjoy the first. Ashley, if people want to follow you on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at. Ashley Schlafly. Uh, let's keep the conversation going. We're about to enter into the world of Buffy. Be prepared for me to be fangirling out. I expect all of you to follow me along down that path into the nostalgia of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I look forward to talking with you about it. And uh, if you want to follow the show on social media, on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler Show. If you want to follow me on me personally on Twitter. It's at Dana Buckler, Instagram at the Dana Buckler show. If you want to email us with questions or comments, it's uh, the Dana Buckler show at gmail.com. And I'd like to point out that I'll be watching a lot of these Buffy shows for the first time. Ashley gave me the quintessential list of the ones that they the can't miss episodes. She said, you don't have to watch the entire series. Although you should. Although I should. But here's a list <laughs> of the episodes that you really need to watch. So I think it's safe to say that this 
the look at Buffy, because we are going to include the movie, will probably be its own multi-part episode, because I don't think we cover, was there seven seasons? Yes, seven I, seven seasons of Buffy in one one film. Okay, I don't think we cover the whole thing in in one hour long episode, so we'll probably get that in a couple episodes. So, Ashley, thank you so much as always, and, and we'll certainly be talking soon. All right, thanks. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.